Hello, and welcome to The Dirt, a podcast about archaeology, anthropology, and our shared human past. I'm Anna. And I'm Amber. And I've got a content warning up front. As the title suggests, uh, this week's episode contains information about things made of people. Um, And so we've got a two-pronged content warning for y'all. Prong one, let us not forget that human remains are and were people who had lives and loved ones. And prong two, this might get a little gross depending on your general outlook on human remains. So just please listen with caution. Okay, on with the show. Today, we are discussing a very important body of work, a human body of work. We're talking about things made of people. You are slowly turning into the Crypt Keeper. I mean, that's fine. (laughs) You're in a management position in that crypt. Oh, finally. Finally where I belong. (laughs) So we're going to start with, as we always do, a bibliography, sort of. Um, Not to mention, I now have for you a new phrase that we challenge Dirt listeners to work into everyday conversation wherever possible, and sometimes where impossible. Anna? Take us through anthropodermic bibliopegy. (laughs) Bibliophagy. (laughs) Don't mind if I do. Anthropodermic bibliopegy. I like like the subheading. Books. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So we're we're talking, this this is books. And so anthropodermic bibliopegy, to put the emphasis on the correct syllables, is... The practice of binding books in human skin. And um, wouldn't you know it, there's an organization for that. As of April 2016, the Anthropodermic Book Project, quote, has identified 47 alleged anthropodermic books in the world's libraries and museums. Of those, 30 books have been tested or are in the process of being tested. And 18 of those books have been confirmed as having human skin bindings as of 2017. And nine were proven to be not of human origin, but of sheep, pig, cow, or other animal. But hang on. Mm. This isn't October again. We're not all about the spooky factor. We also like spooky science. So I will briefly talk about analyzing alleged human skin books via peptide mass fingerprinting. This sounds like a conspiracy theory. Peptide mass fingerprinting? It sounds like fluoride in the water. No, okay, in tell me case, a, Tell me what peptide mass fingerprinting is before the internet. Ma- it's not it. mass. It's not mass in the sense of air buddy. Um, <laughs> so peptide mass fingerprinting, or PMF, can identify mammalian sources of collagen-based materials, such as book bindings, leather, and parchment. And what's collagen? So collagen is a protein that makes up your skin. And okay. so when you get ads for fancy new lotions, they Ooh. often say made with collagen or good for your collagen. Or Oh, when you get back on Pinterest, you can find lots of things where you can consume collagen to stay young. I don't know about staying young, but it's supposed to be good for your joints. But that is neither here nor there. Uh, PMF uses enzymes to break down collagen into a series of peptides. And peptides are chains of amino acids, which every science book ever refers to as the building blocks of life. The, the mitochondria is the powerhouse of the cell, and amino acids are the building blocks of life. So every mammal has a unique amino acid sequence for its collagen. Every animal has a different, because of its DNA, has a different makeup of collagen. And so this is an individual. This isn't like a mine is different than like a gerbil's. It's mine is different from yours. No. Oh, okay. Yours is different from a gerbil's. Okay. Every species okay. has a unique amino acid sequence for that species' skin. Okay. Cool. Yeah. And so therefore... Particular mixtures of peptides are a unique fingerprint. So they use enzymes to break up collagen, and then they take those peptides and analyze them with a mass spectrometer, which is basically a way to get a spectrum, uh, like a chemical readout from a substance. And so the resulting fingerprint that the mass spectrometer reads can then be compared to known samples to figure out what kind of animal your mystery object is made out of. So here are some specific examples of books that indeed have been tested and are confirmed to be made from human skin, or at least the bindings are. 
the Royal College of Surgeons of Edinburgh preserves a notebook bound in the skin of the murderer William Burke after his execution and subsequent public dissection by Professor Alexander Monroe in 1829, which seems late for that kind of thing. (laughs) That is insane. (laughs) Yeah, it's just sort of a casual listing, like, well... But just like we did, we did that, and then we made a book. This guy was a murderer, but you made a notebook out of him. Yeah, it Dr. sort of turns Monroe. the tables a little bit, huh? Yeah. Yikes. This next example has been called the most famous of all anthropodermic bindings, and it's exhibited at the Boston Athenaeum. And it's a, a book titled The Highwayman Narrative of the Life of James Allen, alias George Walton. And it's by said highwayman, James Allen, who made his deathbed confession in 1837 and asked for a copy bound in his own skin to be presented to a man he once tried to rob and admired for his bravery. So like, what? how do you, what do you, someone presents you with that. What do you say? No, thank you. Well, yes, that is what you say. Was that a rhetorical question? No, <laughs> Just that was the correct answer. <laughs> Brown University in Providence, Rhode Island, has four confirmed examples of anthropodermic bound books. One is a bound copy of Dance Macabre Woodcuts by Hans Holbein. Oh, so he's a, he's a famous German artist. And yeah. these are specifically along that trend of memento mori yeah. art. It's sort of a reminder that we're all mortal and death is the great equalizer. So these are a series of woodcuts of people dancing with skeletons and things like that. So appropriate for a skin binding there. And then the largest collection in any one place that I could find is in the Mutter Museum in Philly, um, which has five examples. And three of those come from the skin of one woman. No more information there. That's what I found. That's our book club. All right, well, let's go to church. Let's. Bone church. That's the only church I go to. <laughs> so um, there is a very famous um, bone church, not like church of bone, but church made out of bone. Uh, well, I think first we should say that this is uh, seems to be weirdly common in Europe is to decorate places well, with human bones. I... Weirdly common in that there's more than one. Right. So I wouldn't say that it's weirdly common. I think that we are um, we are not accurately representing the, like, I don't think it's statistically significant. I mean, as far as, like, global reach, but, like, no, there are a not. lot of churches in Europe. And so if there are a handful of churches that have lots and lots of, like, bones decorating them, um, but also if you, if you have catacombs, you just end up with like a lot of bones. Yeah. Like, and what are you going to do with these bones? Sometimes you run out of space in major European cities to bury your dead yeah. and things like the black death come through major, uh, epidemics and wipe out a lot of people at one time. And so you need to move the contents of previous cemeteries in order to accommodate all of these uh, new bodies and so what do you do with those bones yeah well one place where they were bone rich space poor um was at the sedlec ossuary in the czech republic mm-hmm. um, and so this chapel is decorated with more than forty thousand human skeletons um now i'm not sure how they determine like the minimum number of individuals i don't know if we've got forty thousand guess... crania but yeah maybe they just counted like 40,000 femurs or something. Yeah. There's just just a lot of people. Regardless, <laughs> there is a massive chandelier of bones that contains at least one of every human bone. Every fixture and every decorative piece in the Sedlec ossuary is made from real human bones. They're really pushing this. <laughs> that date yeah. back to 1511. So there are arches and pyramids in the ossuary. Um, and they're lined with skulls that are made from between 40,000 and 70,000 skeletons. So that's that must be... You'd think if they had skulls, they could yeah. count. So I guess they... Hey, you run out. Somewhere I mean, that's there. a very yeah. high number to count to. Yeah, you're um, bored. In 1870, the Schwarzenberg family uh, commissioned woodcarver Frantisek Rint 
to redesign the harrowing bone pyramids. <laughs> Not our words. <laughs> and um, they put the Schwarzenberg coat of arms near the entrance to the chapel. You know, they wanted the personal touch. Yeah. <laughs> I guess the coat of arms is just a smaller bone pyramid. <laughs> um, and if you're wondering how all of these bones ended up in a chapel in the Czech Republic in the first place, um, the remains of the 40,000 individuals requested to be buried in a holy place and the Church of Bones, they were they were more than willing to take their remains. Yeah, so, so I guess there was a form you could fill out I just, dating back to 1511. Like, check this box if you would like your bones right, to be. If you'd be like an organ donor. All right, there's another one. This one's not in the Czech Republic. This one is in what is today Italy. Um, and it is the San Bernardino Aleosa in Milan. A Milano. In Milano. Um, so behind a heavy set of double doors that lead to the side chapel's decorative ossuary in Milan lies the small and unassuming San Bernardino Aleasa Church. In 1210, when an adjacent cemetery ran out of space. So old. I know. Um, a room was built to hold bones arranged in crucifix shapes. Maybe that's why you ran out of space. Because you're like getting crafty. Um, <laughs> it's like when, you're, when your crafts get out of control in your bedroom and you need to like annex the spare room. <laughs> yep. Uh, and so the church modified the facade and decorated the walls of the ossuary with human skulls. In Baroque style, for all you architecture nerds, uh, the interior has an octagonal design and is decorated with paintings from the 16th century. The ossuary vault was illuminated in 1695. Now, was that, does that, that mean? That doesn't mean they put lights in. It means it that means, they, okay, um, that, that, like they the, gilded it yeah, and, right. and made it, they painted it and made it fancy. That's what I yep. thought. Okay. Yep. And the churches, mm, pendentives? The churches' pendentives portray the Holy Virgin, St. Ambrose, and St. Bernardino of Siena. Is St. Ambrose the patron saint of super creepy art? Unclear. He might be. Um, the doors are decorated with bones in a Rococo style. Yeah, Baroque and Rococo often go together. They're just very elaborate, lots of swirly bits and gilding. And so Barococo is what we've got going on here. <laughs> Which sounds like it would be a delicious drink. Oh. Barococo? Yeah, can I have a Barococo blended? And it's got like a series of like sugary treats. Just It's like a Bloody Mary, how like... They come with like sliders and bacon on them, but like a Barococo is a delicious chocolatey drink, but it's got like a cake on it, <laughs> which you know what? On board. <laughs> All right. Let's head back up to Eastern Europe. Oh, geez. I think it's Chermna. Okay. Well, we're going to the Skull Chapel in Chermna, Poland. I'm really sorry i don't understand polish letters <laughs> yes um they are that they are many and they are in unexpected places yeah um, much just, like these bones. just like the skulls in skull chapel uh the the chapel's walls are lined with bones from the victims of the 30 years and silesian wars uh the ceilings are aligned with the bones pattern into crosses uh the skulls and leg bones of over 3,000 victims cover the walls of a crypt hidden below the church, which is only accessible through a trap door. The best way to access a crypt. Yeah. Um, in total, the chapel houses over 21,000 remains. Collected by Czech priest Václav Tomasek and Jay Langer. I don't know who that is. Uh, oh, the local grave digger. Okay. Goes by Jay. Um, it took them about 18 years from 1776 to 1794 to collect, clean, and arrange as many of the 24,000 human skeletons as they could. The skull chapel is modeled after similar ossuaries and catacombs in Rome. Uh, the chapel was intended to be a shrine for the dead, but also as a memento for the living. The church's altar is lined with bones of important figures and has niches that include the skulls of the local mayor and skulls with bullet holes. And so now we're going to go to Portugal. Um, now, the last couple here, we're, we're heading westward. So we are going to the Capela dos Ossos in Portugal. So this chapel um, is from 
is is a 16th century Franciscan chapel in Evora, Portugal, which is lined with skulls and bones that stretch over all of the interior walls, as we're seeing here. Um, the main church of St. Francis is decorated with golden altars and walls of painted blue tile. That sounds lovely. Uh, the entrance of the Chapel of Bones is next door, as the guests are welcomed by a large arch bearing, rhyme reminding, bearing a rhyme reminding visitors of their own mortality. Our bones that are here wait for yours. So it's like, <laughs> if you were dead, you'd be home by now kind of thing. <laughs> It's Legend just a condo. <laughs> it's a condo for bones. <laughs> Legend has it that the bones of, of some 5,000 people and skulls covering the chapel's walls and pillars come from soldiers of a major battle or plague victims. Okay. Unclear. Yeah. At the end of the chapel, an altar with a crucifix reminds visitors of the way to overcome death. I leave, but I don't die. I die in the light. In addition to all the bones and skulls and catchphrases um there are two full corpses hanging high on a wall there are plenty of legends surrounding the corpses but their identities are unknown they got a lot going on here at yeah uh, capella dos Asos. portugal what are you doing what's going on in there one more okay one more in peru so this is the monastery of san francisco in peru oh um not just any peru in lima peru <laughs> sorry uh, the Monastery of San Francisco contains the bones of Lima dwellers. Um, it is located in Lima, Peru, and is part of the historic center of Lima and was added in 1991 to the UNESCO World Heritage List. So it was discovered. Okay. So um, in 1943, there were catacombs discovered underneath the church that are connected to the main cathedral by secret passageways. Secret no more. The catacombs served as a burial place until 1808. And it's estimated that about 25,000 bodies were laid to rest there. Um, the skulls and bones are arranged in large circle patterns. So that's sort mm -hmm. of more in keeping with what one might expect you do with bones in a like holy setting. Is that you just kind of have mm -hmm. a, a catacomb that you keep them there. Yeah. Because um, there's like a kind of, it's a long walk from arranging bones in a catacomb to I want a chandelier made out of all, all the parts. Yeah. 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 So speaking of bones, here's a harsh ad pivot. If you want to kick us some bones. Oh Anna. boy. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so we're not, we're not done with things made of people yet. Don't worry. Up next is a truly mouthwatering discussion of the medicinal properties of human flesh. Ew. But before we get into that, just a quick reminder that for a $25 donation, you can get a custom dirt episode of your very own on a topic of your choice. Dedicate it to your favorite nerd or treat yourself. All you have to do is go to thedirtpod.com, scroll to the bottom of the page, and click the Donate Now button. PayPal does the rest, and you'll be able to include a message with your topic request. It's a perfect holiday gift for the person who has everything. Do they have a podcast episode? I bet they don't. On with the stuff. So this, this isn't as fun as our Spooktober episodes. These are just like all like <laughs> depressing and ill-advised. Well, we can learn from the past, huh? Lest we be doomed to repeat it. So this is a fantastic article from the Smithsonian Magazine. It's written by Maria Dolan. And this is about eating people as medicine. Here we go. Strap in. The question was not, should you eat human flesh? But what sort of flesh should you eat? Um, and this is from an interview with Richard Sugg, whose book, Mummies, Cannibals, and Vampires, The History of Corpse Medicine from the Renaissance to the Victorians, is apparently now available. This isn't, this isn't like cannibalism. If you no, want cannibalism, well, I mean, like see our episode it, on in cannibalism. The, in the broadest definition, it is cannibalism, but it's not. It's, it's not like meat. No, it's flesh no, no, no. in that it is it is derived from humans. So yeah, so it is somehow more and less upsetting. Well, Ew, uh, come along on. with me on Ugh. this journey. The answer at first was Egyptian mummy, which was crumbled into tinctures Always. to stanch internal bleeding. What? I bet it didn't work. But other parts of the body soon followed. Skull was one common ingredient taken in powdered form to cure head ailments. So last week we talked about the principle of sympathy, which is 
you uh, have things related or that you think are related to particular parts of the body because of their color or appearance or where they are, you know, in their own physical reality. Uh, So powdered skull to treat a headache that fits in with that. Thomas Willis, a 17th century pioneer of brain science, brewed a drink for apoplexy or bleeding that mingled powdered human skull and chocolate. Uh, King Charles II of England sipped the King's Drops, his personal (laughs) tincture containing human skull in alcohol, which he took for sort of anxiety and general malaise. So I imagine that the alcohol helped, if not the skull. Um, even the toupee of moss that grew over a buried skull, which was called usnea, became a prized additive. What? It's powder believed to cure nosebleeds and possibly epilepsy. What? No, it didn't. Human fat was used to treat the outside of the body. Very fight club. German <laughs> doctors, for instance, prescribed bandages soaked in it for wounds, and rubbing fat into the skin was considered a remedy for gout. It would not fix gout. Blood was procured as fresh as possible while it was still thought to contain the vitality of the body. Uh, This requirement and the general prohibition in polite society against murder made it challenging to acquire. The 16th century German-Swiss physician Paracelsus believed that blood was good for drinking. And one of his followers good for drinking. Like if you have like a substance abuse problem, like if you're an alcoholic, you should have no blood. No, that it was good to drink. Oh, it's good drinking. Like that's (laughs) that blood's good drinking. Yeah, (laughs) great. Uh, And one of Paracelsus's followers even suggested taking blood from a living body. Um, While Uh. that doesn't seem to have been common practice, the poor who couldn't always afford the processed compounds sold in apothecaries could gain the benefits of blood medicine by standing at executions, paying a small amount for a cup of the still warm blood of the condemned. Ugh. Oof. I'm gonna need I'm gonna need some chocolate and skull powder. Like <laughs> after this? Yes. Yeah, well, stay tuned because it doesn't get any better. This is a quote from Richard Sugg. Um, The executioner was considered a big healer in Germanic countries. He was a social leper with almost magical power. So you couldn't be friends with your executioner, but he could get you he could get you what you needed. He was like the weed dealer of the 17th century. Yeah. You were friends with him. And for those who preferred their blood cooked, a 1679 recipe from a Franciscan apothecary describes how to make it into marmalade for the upcoming horror remake of Paddington Bear. <laughs> that's, what's, that's what's in his sandwiches. In certain circumstances, consuming blood, whether human or otherwise, could be conducive to your health. However... Obviously, there are social taboos in place for the consumption of human blood under anything but consensual circumstances. And also, blood is a carrier of all (laughs) kinds of potential pathogens. Please don't drink people's blood is what we're saying. Don't do any of this. Good grief. Okay. So another reason human remains were considered potent and medicine was because they were thought to contain the spirit of the body from which they were taken. Spirit was considered a very real part of physiology, linking the body and the soul. And so in this context, blood was especially powerful. And so Sugg says, They thought the blood carried the soul and did so in the form of vaporous spirits. The freshest blood was considered the most robust. Sometimes the blood of young men was preferred, sometimes that of virginal young women. By ingesting corpse materials, one gains the strength of the person consumed. Um, And so there's a quote from Leonardo da Vinci, we preserve our life with the death of others. In a dead thing insensate, life remains, which, when it is reunited with the stomachs of the living, regains sensitive and intellectual life. Okay, so he was a genius sometimes. Ooh. This whole eating parts of people, drinking blood, this wasn't a new idea. It wasn't new to the Renaissance. It was just, it had become popular again. Oh, there was a so renaissance? Ancient, of- there was a renaissance of all this. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So ancient Romans drank the blood of slain gladiators to absorb the vitality of those strong young men. And 15th century philosopher Marsilio Ficino suggested drinking blood from the arm of a young person for similar reasons. So in this case, the person stays alive, I presume. Many healers in other cultures, including in ancient Mesopotamia and India, believed in the usefulness of human body parts. So it's always good to feel useful. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. 
now that you've taken us through periods in which people were into consuming parts of the newly dead, let's talk about consuming the oldly dead, <laughs> by which I mean uh, mummies. So the use of mummy as a drug. Mummy, was- I don't <laughs> feel well, mummy. <laughs> Uh, It was widespread in Europe from the 12th to the 17th centuries, and its employment lingered on for a hundred or so years later. Its supposed virtue was originally based upon the medicinal properties of natural bitumen obtained from the Dead Sea and elsewhere. And remember last week I told you guys about how bitumen is, it's a like petroleum product and it's like a naturally occurring tar. Um. During the Middle Ages, mummy was obtained from, guess what? Mummies. Um, Embalmed human bodies in Egypt, which were believed to have been prepared with bitumen. Even today, people think that there are people that think that Egyptians used bitumen for mummification. But no, um, that's not the case. Um, The embalming material used is resin, but it does end up looking like bitumen. So... That's not why they were eating mummy for all the wrong reasons. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, Oh no. So the um, the mummy supply, the mummia, um, was obtained from mummified human bodies, uh, and the virtues of the drug were transferred to the bodies themselves. So over time, the term mummy lost its original association with bitumen, and was applied to medicated flesh in general. Yup. And so the use of mummy in medicine, did not finally become obsolete until the latter part of the 18th century. So, think about that. (laughs) That's like Napoleon. That's like the formation of America. That's like America. That's like the Industrial Revolution. Great. So, supplies of uh, mummy or mummia um, were sold to apothecaries in Europe, and they were first obtained from genuine Egyptian mummies. Uh, but eventually, that like the you know mummies dried up, <laughs> um, and hey. it became more difficult to procure them. There were spurious substitutes made from recently dead bodies, which were medicated by the purveyors. Ugh. So you've got it's like our our Persian princess from yeah. way back in the hoax episode. Yeah, and like our. Um, cat well a little bit like the the cat and the animal mummies that were tested yeah. in the uk where they were like not cats um and so you ended up with desiccated bodies from north africa uh, and guanche mummies from the canary islands um they were also exported to europe and sold to the apothecaries yeah so i mean that lasted for a, just a really long time entirely too long yeah well, let's hop over to a totally different part of the world and a, a totally different, I think, framework for yeah. using human bone. Like a less human exploitative bodies. one, it seems. Yeah, this one, in contrast to everything we've been talking about so far, even though the interpretation isn't completely understood yet, this one's kind of nice. In a way. Yeah. Well, I mean, definitely by comparison. Like if yeah. we're dealing in relatives, not absolutes here. And in fact... Literally relatives. We're dealing with relatives. relatives. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. So, nice one. Okay. So, uh, this is in uh, Teotihuacan, which is a large archaeological site about 30 miles northeast of Mexico City. And it seems that members of a pre-Aztec civilization living there used human bones, likely from their freshly dead relatives, to make objects like buttons, combs, needles, spatulas, and dozens of other everyday utensils. Femurs, tibias, and human skulls were transformed into household items shortly after death, and this is coming from the team leader Abigail Meza Peñaloza of the National Autonomous University of Mexico, UNAM. The Teotihuacanos used different stones as knives to finally remove the flesh and muscles from the bones. And in this case, the bodies needed to be as fresh as possible because after a person dies, uh, the bone can quickly become too fragile to sculpt. Rebecca Story 
A Teotihuacan expert at the University of Houston said that making utensils out of human bone fits with the ancient culture. And here's a quote. They were not particularly afraid of death, said Story. Um, and she wasn't involved in this discovery at Teotihuacan, but she's she's speaking about it since she's an expert on the civilization there. Um, continuing with the quote, they buried the members of their family under and around the houses and manipulated their bones. So the Teotihuacan metropolis in Mexico, which was also known as the City of the Gods, is one of the largest ancient urban centers in the Americas. The city thrived between about 100 BCE and 650 CE. The pre-Hispanic culture is known to have practiced human and animal sacrifices as evidenced by bones buried in the city's temples that are thought to have been offerings to the gods. This isn't quite like that. These newly analyzed bones, these newly analyzed bones were found across a neighborhood of the city called Ventilla. The fragments which date to the classic period, see our episode on chronologies, uh, which was when the city was really uh, in its heyday between 200 and 400 CE show only marks left by the defleshing process and no signs of ritual sacrifice. Um, and this was a finding of the Unam researchers. More than that, the bones used to make the artifacts appear to be from locals who were traditionally buried under the floors of their family homes. And this is really cool. I actually didn't know that this could be a marker of identity, but apparently your frontal sinuses, so those are like the very delicate coils and like scrolls of bone up in your frontal nasal cavity those are and those are the, those ones, are the that ones that for you hurt. are always well not the full. bones themselves yeah um those are essentially unique enough to be a fingerprint and so um a quote from the the pi on the project um Me uh meza Peñoloza, when I compared frontal sinuses, a bone so distinctive and unique that it works like a fingerprint used in the artifacts with those from buried skeletons, they were identical. The bone shapes didn't match samples from the skeletons of foreigners who were sacrificed, which means that the bone artifacts in Ventilla were made from fellow Teotihuacanos. The archaeologists also found that artifacts were made only from the bones of adults in their prime, this might be because children's bones are too fragile, while the bones of the elderly might uh, also be fragile, but also have diseases like osteoporosis. They preferred the bones of healthy adults who appeared to have died of natural causes. But also, at the time, life expectancy was pretty short, and people would die in their 30s. For now, the archaeologists don't know who was working at this bone factory or what was done with the flesh that was removed from the human remains. And... Right now, it's not yet possible to link the individual bone artifacts with particular households, but the Unan team does plan to run an isotope analysis to figure out where the people whose bones became utensils likely lived. So by looking at the types of strontium and oxygen atoms found in adult teeth, the researchers can tell where a person drank water and therefore where they lived most of their lives. So the way that that works, just really quickly, strontium is an isotope which is um, something we're going to talk about in in um, its own episode. But basically, it is a, an atom of the element strontium with a different number of neutrons than just the regular old strontium. And so um, the bedrock all over the Earth is made of different ratios of strontium. And so there are really good records of the strontium ratios from all over the world. And so as groundwater kind of percolates up from uh, from the aquifers, you get a ratio of strontium in the water that's reflective of the strontium in the bedrock below it. Based on the water that you drink the first 10 years or so when your teeth are forming, um, that can inform an archaeologist who does a strontium isotope test of where you grew up. So uh, they, they want to do these analyses to figure out whether these were sort of native Teotihuacanos or if they had moved there from different coastal communities. And so now we move into a little bit of speculation time. And so the team also hopes that the, these findings will eventually help archaeologists better understand the symbolism of using bone to make housewares. So let's say that an arm bone from someone who was a good tailor was made into a needle. And so maybe uh, the, the thought was that this gift, this talent of being a good tailor somehow was um, imbued within the needle itself. Or if, you, if you're 
relative passes away, maybe you make some household object from them in order to remember them. Um, and so that's a possibility, but that's not something that they can confirm right now. You mentioned already that we can learn a lot from bones in terms of uh, isotope analysis or um, diagnostic features, but we've been learning a lot about bones for a long time. And so I'm going to tell you a little bit about like preparation of reference skeletons. Um, and so in general, you know, if you're going to go see a doctor, you, you want them to really know the ins and outs of the human skeleton. I guess preferably the ends of the human skeleton. Yeah, you don't want um, outs in terms you don't of your bones. Many outs, yeah. Bones stay in. Yes. Um, so these days, uh, most of the reference models that med students use are made out of uh, some kind of plastic and are 3D printed. So they're very accurate, but not humans. But there are lots of real human skeletons out there in teaching collections. These days, these are usually individuals who have donated their bodies to science, but historically, the process wasn't always so voluntary. And so there's an article, uh, you know, there are hand, handbooks, there, there are guides for, for doing this, which I do not do this. Yeah. Unless, unless. Let me be clear. Unless this Don't is do actually this. your job and you are someone who takes. No, even if this is your job. Oh, don't do, yeah. The don't thing, do this. The thing that, don't do yeah, what I'm going to tell you. Don't do this. To say, don't do that. Don't do this. Don't do it. Don't do it. There is an article <laughs> on Atlas Obscura that looks at um, some instructions for preparing human bones for display circa 1543. And so the 16th century way is not how it's done today. So step one, get yourself a corpse. <laughs> That's it. Yep. Just get one. Um, there's no hints about where or how you're on your own, but you got your corpse. Awesome. Get that flesh off. Cut away as much flesh as you can. Watch the joints and ligaments, though. You need those to stay intact. All right. Now you got your fully articulated yet defleshed skeleton of the corpse that you got from. Mm -hmm. Step three, get a box, um, a body length box, possibly known as a coffin, um, and put some holes in those walls. Place the skeleton inside and cover it with quicklime, which was used in centuries for agriculture, warfare, and cemeteries, and now is available online. So put that quicklime on, sprinkle it with water, and wait a week. I guess you're now, you now have a sprouted skeleton. Um, and presumably, definitely, you want to keep that box somewhere where nobody's going to open it. Yep. Mostly because, ew, um, I don't think it's going to like hurt the process. No. But, um, so, stanky. you know, you, you got, you, you got your body in a box, um, and now you got a week to kill. During that week, you want to go locate a stream or other body of running water in which to place a rock. Uh, nope, place the box. Um, <laughs> that is what that yep. is. Well, that's why you got um, holes in that box. Yep, so you, you pop that sucker in there, give it a week, and allow the stream to wash away what Atlas Obscura calls loose and decaying flesh. So, yeah, so it's uh, like a colander. Yep. Yep, strain those bones. Um, step five, remove, I guess, step 4B, remove box from body of moving water. Uh, step mm -hmm. five, clean off any leftover flesh and uh, leave the skeleton out to dry in the sun. And the ligaments should keep those bones together. You did it, but you didn't do it. Don't do Don't it. Don't do it. But if you did do it, you would have your own human skeleton. Great. And somebody would probably ask a lot of questions. So don't do it. Um, so if you find this super gross, um, don't worry. So did Andreas Vesalius, the 16th century author from whom they're derived. <laughs> so he also wrote it. Don't do it. Yeah. Um, he, uh, he quoted these instructions and then went, no. Yeah. So Vesalius was a hotshot rock star Renaissance scientist with a talent for self-promotion. He was young, cocky. And skeptical of the medical establishment. But, I mean, the medical establishment was pretty ripe for the skepticism uh, because it was still based on ancient Greek medical work that was already more than a millennium old at the time. In Vesalius' opinion, skeleton making was, quote, time-consuming, dirty, and difficult. Um, and that's Why'd you make him sound like such a diva? I don't know. <laughs> it's like, 
Ew. Um, and this is um, this comes via um, Anita Guarini, who is a historian at Oregon State University, um, who the author of this Atlas Obscura article talked to. Uh, Vesalius preferred a different strategy for revealing human skeletal anatomy. So he was a skeletal maverick. First, you got to boil that body in a, quote, capacious cauldron. Um, and then um, after you boil it, you skim away the fat and clean the boiled flesh from the bones. That way, you can actually see the joints instead of leaving them hidden behind blackened ligaments. Gross. Mm. Capacious cauldron. Um, now, most of the skeletons used in medical schools are plastic, but the ones that were used a couple hundred years ago, they were all people. Um, and so for centuries, human skeletons have been bought and sold, uh, though it is rare for a commodity to have once been part of a person. Okay. Um, but despite the long practice of hanging human bones in museums and academic institutions, um, Guarini says that, quote, we don't really have a good history of skeletons, end quote. After noticing how overlooked they had been, she began investigating the history and iconography of skeletons, how they were used, how they were made. How they were how they were defleshed, not yes. like how skeletons <laughs> got born. How they were used, how they were prepared, and how that knowledge was passed down through generations of scientists. So Vesalius's technique was one among many proposed was one among many proposed strategies for creating a pristine set of human bones. Um, and then a further note about Vesalius, because he seems like quite the character. Um, so he, while his older colleagues deferred to the medical works of Galen the Greek physician who lived in the second century and had a lot of bad ideas, editorialization from me, uh, Vesalius preferred direct observation of the human body. So Vesalius taught using dissection and seemed to have no qualms about using human remains. Um, and our friend uh, Dr. Greeny says... With characteristic macabre whimsy, oh, he sounds fun, he recommended posing the skeleton with a scythe or a pike or a javelin and suggested stringing the ear bones onto a nerve to make a necklace. In the 17th century, there was this new science of osteology, um, study of bones. Um, the, the bones became very hot then, and their use was increased. So hot right now. So, bones. So hot right now. Uh and their use was increased in anatomical study. By the middle of that century, so by the, the middle of the 17th one. century, uh, <laughs> skeletons, both human and animal, started showing up in the catalogs of natural history collections and cabinets of curiosities. Wunderkammern? Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, uh, such as the elaborate skeleton-filled dioramas built by Dutch anatomist Frederick Ruysch. Frederick Roish. I read it phonetically and it took me on a trip. <laughs> Soon, students of both art and anatomy were expected to study human skeletons as part of their training. And the public grew curious as well. <laughs> what you, What's that skeleton doing? What you doing? Um, by the 1660s, there was a market for them in Europe. By the 18th century, displaying human skeletons became trendy. Ew. Uh, we're going to be found in a 1716 advertisement for the moving skeleton, a public Ooh. attraction, quote, which by a mechanical projection performs several very strange and surprising actions. Also groans like a dying person, smokes a pipe of tobacco, and blows the candle out as naturally as if alive. End quote. Huh. There wasn't a lot to do. You got that in that 1716. I don't I feel like the moving skeleton should be like the groaning skeleton. Uh, oh, I mean, yeah, same. I'm all bones. <laughs> By this time, the age of the moving skeleton attraction, anatomists wanted to produce clean white bones. Uh, one physician made sure to leave his bones out for a month. Not his bones. The bones he was yeah. <laughs> treating. <laughs> one physician made sure to leave his preparing bones out for months to bleach in the sun. Another eschewed boiling bones. Boiling bones are over. And instead, he left corpses to rot in water, which he changed periodically. You know, that said, that is how I have, in my experience, prepared comparative animal right, skeletons. That's why I thought that it was like a, a thing that you yeah. just keep it 
It's as gross as it sounds yep. or grosser. Oh, this technique required pulling softened flesh away from the bones and would have required a steely constitution, as did reading that sentence. You did great, bud. <sighs> but the demand for skeletons was high enough that more people were taking on this job. In the early 18th century, one surgeon offered a course in skeleton making. And so if this section didn't totally gross you out <laughs> and you want to learn more about it, um, there is some extra reading that we will put on our reading list for the episode, including an article by National Geographic on the secret lives of cadavers, which is a really interesting article about how legally donated bodies become medical specimens. Great. And then I also re uh, recommend the book Stiff by Mary Roach, yeah. who is a phenomenal, just like popular science writer in general. But Stiff is about sort of what happens to, it's the same idea, what happens to donated bodies. Um, and there's lots of different things that that they're used for. And it's a very, very good book. Um, this article reminded me of a very relevant example of humans being used as both teaching tool and art. <laughs> so this is the Body Worlds exhibit. And it is a creation of Dr. Angelino Whaley and Dr. Gunther von Hagens. And the primary goal of the exhibition is preventative health care. So their exhibits were conceived to educate the public about the inner workings of the human body and to show the effects of healthy and unhealthy lifestyles. So it's targeted mainly at a lay audience. And the exhibitions are aimed to inspire visitors, oh boy, to become aware of the fragility of their bodies and to recognize the anatomical individual beauty inside each of us. Like, I don't need to be aware of my own fragility. I have enough anxiety as it is. Each Body World exhibition contains real human specimens, including a series of fascinating whole body plastinates, and I'll cover that in a second, as well as individual organs, organ configurations, blood vessels, and transparent body slices. The plastinates take the visitor on an exciting journey under the skin. Under the skin. Under the skin. <laughs> dee, 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 dee. Fair use. Probably not good use, though. Um, <laughs> That's so what we'll, it get, provides... we'll get fined <laughs> for using it badly. Just, yeah. <laughs> just Disney being like, not cool. Um, okay. So the, the exhibit provides wide-ranging insight into the anatomy and physiology of the human body. In addition to organ functions, common diseases are described in an easily understood manner by comparing healthy and affected organs. So let's talk about how they do it. The plastination. So yeah. plastination is a process designed to preserve the body for educational and instructional purposes. Only for those purposes in oh, yeah. a more detailed way than ever before. Well, other purposes are featured, I think, in the second season of NBC's Hannibal. <laughs> cool. Um, but these plastinates, which are legal, are dry, orderless, durable, and are particularly valuable educational tools, not only for medical professionals, but for a broader public. And so here is the process. Step one. God. Get a cauldron. <laughs> no. <laughs> no cauldrons involved. The first step is fixation. Formaldehyde or other preservation solutions are pumped through the arteries to kill all bacteria and to prevent decomposition of tissues. This takes about three to four hours. After that, dissection. Skin, fatty, and connective tissues are removed in order to prepare the individual anatomical structures and elements. And it depends on how complex the specimen is and what they want to do with it. But the dissection can take between 500 to 1,000 hours of work. When the necessary dissection is completed, then the actual process of plastination begins. So first, water and soluble fats are dissolved from the body in a bath of acetone. Under freezing conditions, the acetone draws out all the water and replaces it. So water out, acetone in. The third step is forced impregnation. Whoa. Not what you think. Here, the specimen is placed in a bath of liquid polymer, such as silicone, rubber, polyester, or epoxy resin. And then by creating a vacuum, the acetone boils at a very low temperature and then vaporizes. So as the acetone vaporizes and leaves the cell, uh, the cells of the body rather, um, it creates a vacuum that draws the liquid polymer into the body. So... 
the polymer gets into every last cell of the body, and this lasts about two to five weeks. Whoa! Yeah, so they have it cooking in there for a while. And so after this uh, this resin impregnation, the body is still flexible, and then it can be positioned as desired. So um, the Body Worlds exhibit has, when they have um, entire human bodies, or at least uh, you know all the parts together, they are often in very active poses. So like someone is mid stride running or, you know, dancing or something like that. And every single anatomical structure is aligned and fixed with the help of wires, needles, clamps, and foam blocks. And so obviously to do this and make it look realistic, you have to have a lot of anatomical knowledge. And also, according to this website, a defined sense of aesthetics. This step can take weeks or even months. That's not surprising. And then finally, the specimen is hardened. And oh, fixed they in like place. make him get a job, grind down his yeah. sense of youthful wonder. Yeah, no, the the specimen is hardened, and depending on the initial polymer that they use to impregnate the remains, this is done with either gas, light, or heat, and so it protects the plastinate against decomposition and decay. And so all of this process requires about fifteen hundred working hours, and normally takes about a year to complete. Okay. Oof. Yeah. So I think I think that's going to do it for us, uh, to everyone's relief. Thanks for listening, everybody. Jeez. Oh, thanks also, special thanks to our latest addition to the Patreon fold. Yeah. Thanks, Krista. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. You're a dirtbag now. Yeah. If you want to be like Krista, you can support us on Patreon too. You can become a monthly subscriber or a single-time donor. Either way, we'd be extremely grateful. Mm-hmm. Yes, please, and thank you. And you can also uh, help us out by leaving us a review on the Apple Podcast app. That would be tremendously helpful. If you want to find us, you can do so on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, and wherever else you get your podcast fix. You can follow us on Facebook at The Dirt Podcast on Twitter, we're at Dirt Podcast, and on Instagram, we're at The Dirt Pod. And we're going to be uh, posting some pictures for this episode, a lot of the Bone Chapel pictures, but uh, we promise not to post anything too nasty. If you want to send us an email, we'd like that. You can send us an email at yeah. thedirtpodcast at gmail.com. And you can see everything all together at our website, thedirtpod.com. Thanks for listening, everybody. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye. Bye.